Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming to Cato's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute. I'm going to be brief because we have two uh, terrific speakers and a fascinating uh, subject. And the subject of today's book forum is the book Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. This is recently published by Harper One. Our featured speaker is the author J.W. Richards, with comments to follow from our own Doug Bandow. When you read about a Christian perspective on public policy uh, questions, it usually involves one of the social issues, abortion, stem cell research, gay marriage, or a very general pronouncement on why we need more foreign aid to help the poor, uh, more AIDS research. Uh, conservative Christians tend to dominate the first kind of discussion, and more liberal Christians the second. J. Richard's book fills a vacuum in the discussion. He argues with sound thinking and a lot of very good examples that free people in a free market can accomplish a lot of good and do so in ways that are entirely consistent with the basic principles of traditional Christianity and the Christian Bible. This book is very nicely organized around eight myths that many Christians hold about free market capitalism. For example, myth number three is the, the zero-sum game, and that's believing that trade requires a winner and a loser. And by the way, this book isn't just for his fellow Christians. There are a lot of non-Christians that hold on to those same myths, aren't there? <laughs> uh, later in the book, he offers up his top ten list of ways to alleviate poverty. It's not exactly uh, Ten Commandments for Development, uh, but say ten very good and probably essential ideas. My favorite is number four, uh, under the headline, Encourage Economic Freedom. Allow people to trade goods and services unencumbered by tariffs, subsidies, price controls, undue regulations, and restrictive immigration policies. Uh, the price of the book is uh, worth that advice uh, alone. Well, let me get out of the way. Here to talk about his new book is Jay Richards. Jay is familiar with the think tank world. He has served in leadership positions at the Discovery Institute and the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's currently a visiting fellow uh, down Massachusetts Avenue at the Heritage Foundation and a contributing editor of the American at the American Enterprise Institute. He's written many academic articles, books, and popular essays on a wide variety of subjects. Uh, he's also executive producer of several documentaries, including The Call of the Entrepreneur, The Birth of Freedom, and Effective Stewardship. His work has been covered in publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also appeared on many national radio and TV programs, including Larry King Live. He holds a Master of Divinity degree, a Master of Theology degree, and a Ph.D. with honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. Please, please join me in welcoming Jay Richards. Well, it's great to be here with you, uh, and uh, thanks so much to Cato for uh, pulling this together. I'm uh, so uh, thankful, especially to, uh, to to Dan and to Doug, 
for their work, their yeoman's work, frankly, because the truth of the matter is, as Dan said, aren't a lot of public Christians, at least Christians thinking and articulating their ideas as Christians that uh, have developed their ideas economically, or as I put it, uh, unfortunately not sarcastically, developed their thinking on economic issues well. Uh, there have been a number of really influential books in recent years. Some of these some of you may have know, know about. In fact, these are the books I sort of wrote in response to. A uh, sort of long-time favorite among evangelicals, a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by a guy named Ron Sider. Sider first came out with this book in 1977, so it was, of course, sort of before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And if you read that first edition, you'll notice, I mean, Sider is, is an evangelical. He speaks and writes as an evangelical. He bases his arguments frequently on, on the biblical text. Uh, but you'll notice that the, both the language and the arguments are more or less uh, sort of soft socialism. I mean, in fact, his language uh, was almost sympathetic to general kind of at least social democratic ideas in 1977. What's interesting is that it, it's gone through several editions, and the last edition, I think, was in 1997. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a, an intern actually do a sort of redaction and text analysis of the different editions to see how things had gone. Uh, and if you notice, uh, look at all of Sider's editions, you notice that things changed dramatically from uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union than afterwards. At least things changed dramatically on rhetorical grounds. His rhetoric changes from uh, uh, kind of general sympathy towards socialism to a, what at least seems to be a general sympathy towards market solutions to problems, a, an appreciation for free market and things like that. What you might note especially, though, is that despite the change in the rhetoric, uh, his poli policy prescriptions are more or less exactly the same. What that suggests to me is that Sider, while he sort of realizes the rhetorical situation has changed, still hasn't learned some basic economic lessons. Uh, I think th that problem actually comes through in spades in this much more recent and in some ways more popular book called God's Politics by uh, Jim Wallace. How many of you have heard of this book or of Wallace? Wallace is actually here. Uh, he's a self-styled progressive evangelical, so he himself is also an evangelical, makes very explicit theological arguments. But uh, again, I mean, his policy views on virtually everything other than perhaps abortion is in, indistinguishable from the policy views of, say, the editorial page of the New York Times. It's just that, you know, they usually have Bible verses either before, during, or after the argument. Um, and, and what's sort of frustrating about reading the book is, you know, I've been, I've been talking about these issues for years. I'd speak on college campuses, and after the book came out in 05, I realized everyone between the ages of 18 and 21 uh, that thinks of, thinks of themselves as a sort of thinking Christians, Christians seems to be reading this book. Uh, and yet the book is uh, remarkably short, both on good exegesis, that is on sort of careful interpretation of scripture, but also on economics. It makes really sort of embarrassing economic mistakes on almost every page. And, and so much so that I thought, well, I mean, does this need a sort of full-scale response? But I finally realized that uh, the argument that many of us thought was over uh, in the 20th century, that is the argument between communism and capitalism, uh, has a way of resurfacing. You know, I was started out in college very much as a leftist. By the time I'm a senior in college, I didn't uh, buy the sort of leftist critique of capitalism. I nevertheless continue to think that capitalism was morally unsavory. In other words, I thought capitalism, if you're going to just talk about economics, is much more effective for distributing goods and services than any kind of command economy. But I still thought capitalism had a moral problem. Nevertheless, I, I thought the argument had been more or less settled uh, in, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and most of worldwide communism. The problem is there are now people voting and talking and blogging that don't even remember the Soviet Union. 
you know, and there continues to be a sort of uh, morally intuitive attraction to socialist solutions. And it's because I think part of the reason is because socialism appeals directly to our moral intuitions in a way that capitalism does not, because capitalism requires that we understand something about the counterintuitive nature of the market economy. And so it requires a little bit of sustained thinking. That's why I think the arguments that those of us in the free market movement make uh, will never go out of style. We'll never reach a day in which we can just quit making these arguments, in which we can say, well, it's been settled. Let's go do something else. Uh, in fact, I think that these are sort of perennial themes, and, and uh, they continue to surface. What, as Dan said, I, I wanted to do in this book is not sort of teach people complicated economics. In fact, I'm not an economist. I would maintain that most of the stuff that a person needs to be an educated citizen, to be able to evaluate public policy uh, in economics, uh, doesn't require that you have an advanced degree or even that you've had a course in macroeconomics. It just requires that you think carefully uh, through various issues. And in fact, I think almost every intellectual mistake that Christians and, frankly, others make about economics can be boiled down into one of these eight myths that I talk about in the book. Now, I'm not going to obviously talk about all eight myths here today. I want to just briefly touch on three so that you kind of get an idea of, of what I'm trying to do. First, what I call the piety myth, and most of you are probably familiar with the so-called law of unintended consequences. The intentions for a policy, of course, uh, don't bear any relation to the actual effects of the policy. City Council's intentions on rent control policy might be to help the poor have affordable housing. The effect, nevertheless, is going to be to create a shortage of affordable housing, as we all know from experience. The piety myth, though, I think is especially especially acute problem for religious people and Christians in particular. And the reason is this. Um, if you're a Christian uh, or you're just a theist in general, then you think that why you do things is morally relevant. That is, your, your piety, your intentions, uh, why you do things has something to do with your status before God. God cares about why I do things. He doesn't just want me to do good things. He wants me to do them for the right reason. We're commanded to love the Lord our gods with our hearts and with our souls and with our minds. So we focus on the heart part. The problem is, as, as we all know, the hard part, that is uh, why we do something, while it might be spiritually or morally relevant in our, connect, in our relationship with God, is not economically relevant. In fact, in most cases, it's economically irrelevant. This is such an important point that Henry Hazlitt, in his terrific book called Economics in One Lesson, actually defined the art of economics this way. Here's what Hazlitt said. He said, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Now, he's, notice he's not talking about the science of economics. This is the art of economics. And the art of economics, Hazlitt thinks, is it's something like an intellectual disposition that you get down in your bones, so that it's, it, it's in you at an intuitive level, so that for any policy that someone proposes, your mind immediately asks this question, and then what will happen? Right? Regardless of the policy, regardless of the purposes or intentions of those who are advocating it, if you're practiced in the art of economics, your mind will say, and then what would happen? What will be the consequences? And you trace those consequences. Most of the time, this is not rocket science. We could usually do this logically, and in most economic policies, we can also do it empirically because we have experience with it. Now, sometimes when I, when I speak on Christian college campuses, I will spend an entire hour doing nothing but talking about this. I was at Houston Baptist University about a month ago. I spent an hour simply giving examples of uh, uh, situations in which a number of influential people believe the piety myth, 
focused all of their moral attention and energy on their intentions and spent apparently no time thinking about the consequences of policies uh, inevitably to, to very bad result. Let me just give you one very brief example, the current example, the financial crisis. Now, obviously, this is a very complicated issue. I've spent six months reading books and articles on the financial crisis and still don't feel like I fully grasp it. But I do think uh, at the foundation of the crisis, which we all recall had something to do with the subprime mortgage crisis, was a series of good intentions that influenced policy over a period of decades. Now, what was the good intention? The good intention was to help lower-income Americans and more Americans have access to affordable housing. That's good, all things being equal. Most of us would like for people to own their homes rather than merely rent. But as we all now know, this led to a series of policies, one of encouraging private banks to lower their eligibility standards for mortgages, and uh, the same sort of thing in so-called government-sponsored enterprises, these semi-public, semi-private banks, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which changed the series of incentives over a period of years so that loan officers, who in a free market would have acted entirely differently in the system that had been set up, made decisions uh, that led, in the end, to a huge number of defaults on loans. Now, the problem is, of course, is that the financial crisis has been blamed not on a series of bad policy decisions and in incentives, but, of course, on the free market. But just think about it for a minute. Let's say you're a loan officer at a local bank. All right, you're going to lend someone money, and you know your bank is going to get stuck with the loan. You're not going to be able to offload it anywhere. Everybody's going to remember that you're the one that made the loan, right? Uh, and you've got to hold on to it. You don't want it to default over a 30-year period. You're going to act in a certain way. Right? You're going to want to make sure the person borrowing the money can afford it. You're going to want to know something about their, uh, their credit rating. Uh, you're going to want them to have some skin in the game, so you're probably going to want them to have a down payment. All these kind of natural market incentives click in so that you'll, everything you do will be organized so that ideally you can make a profit, but certainly that you don't lend someone money for a house that they can't afford. Now change the scenario just slightly so that the loan officer now knows in fact, nobody's really looking all that closely at uh, the criteria for the person borrowing the loan. And in fact, there's strange legal and social pressure to lend money to people in particular uh, who have bad credit ratings and have very little evidence uh, that they'll be able to repay the loans. You also know you'll quickly be able to offload the loan, that that loan itself will be chopped up and securitized, will be amplified in various derivatives and sold to places like little northern towns in Norway. All right? Completely lost, right? Your incentives there are going to be entirely different. And yet that's the scenario that we set up. It's totally strange, a complete sort of subversion of market incentives, all motivated for good intentions, right? All motivated by many people who had to have believed the piety myth. Because the simple incentives and the problems, you can describe them as I did, I think, in two minutes. And yet they happened. I think those kinds of policies, primarily at least, if not only happen because a lot of people believe the piety myth. The piety myth, I think, is especially acute for religious people because we think why we did things are important. But I would argue that despite that, when we're in the policy realm, whether you're religious or non-religious, what you do should take up all of our attention. We should focus morally on the effects of a policy and simply ignore our intentions. Good intentions can lead to bad policies. Bad intentions can lead to good policies. It simply doesn't matter. Well, that's the, the first myth. The second one, and the one I want to spend most of the time on here, is the so-called greed myth. Now, greed myth is especially problematic because both critics and champions of capitalism, I think, believe it. Now, what's the greed myth? The greed myth is simply believing that the essence of capitalism or greed is greed, or that capitalism is based on greed. 
This is an extremely popular idea. In fact, several of my most, uh, you know, most appreciated uh, free marketers, people like John Stossel and Walter Williams, have, have made this argument. It's always sort of immortalized by this uh, Michael Douglas character, Gordon Gecko, in the great uh, Oliver Stone movie in 1987, Wall Street. I'm sure some of you, at least the ones of you that are my age or older, have seen this. If you haven't seen it and you're younger, Stone is doing a sequel, so you get to see it next year, actually. But he gives, Gecko gives this terrific speech in the middle of the film uh, that goes like this. He said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its, in all its forms has marked the upward surge of mankind. Quite inspiring. Now, you might say, okay, well, yeah, right, but this, this character is fictional. He's an Oliver Stone character. This is Oliver Stone's caricature of the capitalist. Of course, you probably know that's not true. In fact, some of the most prominent defenders of capitalism in the 20th century made something like the same argument. Ayn Rand, for instance, whose books still sell about 300,000 copies a year. Here's how she put it in one of her books. She said, capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They're philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. She wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Now, it probably doesn't take a lot of historical knowledge to know that selfishness or greed has always been considered in the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, one of the seven deadly sins, right? So to identify it with a virtue is at the very least a kind of rhetorical non-starter for anyone whose, whose moral sensibilities are shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this was my problem for years. In fact, I uh, started reading Rand when I was a senior in college. and was completely transfixed by her arguments utterly persuaded in her arguments against collectivism, but nevertheless continued to be uneasy about her basic argument. It wasn't until I read people like George Gilder and Michael Novak several years later that I realized, no, in fact, you can make a moral defense of capitalism quite apart from this. But there's still this problem. Is it, is it true? Is capitalism uh, somehow based on greed, on selfishness? And a lot of people actually think it's not just Rand that said that. In fact, the sort of father of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, made an argument like this. Now, most people don't actually read Smith's uh, very thick tome, The Wealth of Nations. They read a couple of choice quotes pulled out of context. So let me give you a couple of examples. Here's Adam Smith on self-interest. This is in his Wealth of Nations. He says, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we expect our meal, but from his regard to his own interest. Of course, Smith says all sorts of things like this. Elsewhere, he talks about the invisible hand. Here's what he says. In spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, business people are led as if by an invisible hand, uh, and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. Now, if you look at this superficially, you might think, well, he's saying more or less the same thing. Uh, greedy, self-interested business people uh, through the market somehow uh, lead to sort of good results. So is Smith saying greed is good? That's how a lot of people read him. In fact, I've got a collection of, of well-known economists and scholars that think Smith was arguing more or less the same thing that Ayn Rand was. But he wasn't. In fact, this is the only place that I think uh, requires, you know, maybe two minutes of, of attention because I think there's a couple of really important nuances here that people miss, especially those of us that defend the free market. It's important to remember, first of all, Smith was a moral philosopher, not an economist. He'd written a, a book previous to The Wealth of Nations called The Theory of Moral Sentiments in which he develops this idea that human beings in sort of social settings and families and communities develop natural sympathies for each other. Moreover, Smith himself had criticized Bernard Mandeville, 
who had argued that greed is good. Mandeville is a Dutchman who wrote this book, uh, The Fable of the Bees, which basically argued about, it was a fable of British society. It argued that all these little greedy bees sort of pursuing their uh, own interests nevertheless led to a productive uh, beehive, but they grumbled because of the moral problem. So Joe finally said, okay, fine, you can all be virtuous. They become virtuous and the beehive falls apart. Okay, so Mandeville, right, was arguing that greed is good. What did Smith say about Mandeville? He said, Mandeville's system is wholly pernicious. Smith was a moral philosopher. He didn't think greed or, uh, was a virtue. He didn't think selfishness was a virtue. Uh, he never said that. The next point is this. Mere self-interest in Smith's term is not the same as selfishness. Self-interest, if you look at Smith, is basically what we know and what we're responsible for. So the butcher, he doesn't have to be thinking about the ends or the purposes of his customers. He does have to think, what can I provide that they will freely buy? Right? So he has to be other-directed in that way. But he can simply be concerned about his day-to-day -day concerns, you know, putting food on the table, you know, getting, affording braces or college education for his children, things like that. That's his self-interest. That's the sort of narrow purview of things that he's concerned with. But that's not the same as selfishness, right? Every time you take a breath or take your vitamins or look both ways before you cross the street, right, or eat three square meals a day or show up to work on time, you're acting in your self-interest. Those things aren't only not bad, they're actually praiseworthy. We ought to do those things. The basis of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you, is based in a properly ordered type of self-love. So self-interest is not itself morally problematic. The genius of the market, as Smith said, is that people can pursue their narrow self-interest as an end, and nevertheless, because of the incentives of the market, a socially beneficial order can be created. That's entirely different from saying that greed is good. In fact, notice Smith's claim previously. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and opacity. His point wasn't that greed is good because it leads to a socially beneficial outcome. His point wasn't that the butcher, the brewer, and the baker ought to be selfish. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity. In other words, capitalism, free market capitalism, as long as the rules are set up right, will channel not only legitimate self-interest, but even pernicious greed and other vices into socially beneficial outcome. But saying capitalism channels greed is not the same as saying either that greed is good or that capitalism is based on greed. If that's the only thing you remember uh, from my talk, I hope you'll remember that. Well, and then the third, which probably most of us here are familiar with, what I call the zero-sum game myth. A zero-sum game myth obviously is drawn from a, a term from game theory. Uh, and game theory talks about three different types of games. A zero-sum game is simply a game in which if somebody wins, somebody loses. It's like adding one and negative one. It sums to zero, right? It equals a zero. So like a political race in a congressional district. One person wins, somebody else loses. Chess, checkers, those are all zero-sum games. The problem is a lot of people think market economies are zero-sum games. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Someone gets more than their fair share. If I get rich, won't that cause someone else to get poor? And most of us know almost immediately, well, of course that's not right. But it's a real question that ought to be surfaced. Is the market economy intrinsically a zero-sum game. Because remember, there's a couple of other types of games. Besides a win-lose or zero-sum game, there's the lose-lose games, right, that none of us play for obvious reasons, you know, at least more than once, right? And then there's win-win games. So the question is always, what kind of economies fall into which kinds of games? I think if you ask the question that's way, that way, it's quite clear that a market economy is a win-win game. Now, the first easy response is simply the logic 
of free trade, right? The logic of free trade requires that the actors or the, the trading partners be free on both sides. If I steal something from someone, it's not a free trade. But if I trade $15 with my barber to cut my hair, of course, she values my money more than the time it took her to cut my hair. I value her cutting my hair more than $15. We both perceive our, ourselves as better off as a result. That, by definition, because of the rules of the game, is win-win, even when you don't add anything new to the system. Of course, the second idea is often illustrated in terms of a pie. Now, I think of a cherry pie. Now, what, what's a pie like? You know, a pie is a fixed size, uh, uh, you know, fixed capacity, a fixed weight and volume. It can sit on the shelf and get cold. But when you slice up a pie, it's a physical manifestation of a zero-sum game, right? So if one person gets too large of a slice, somebody else gets a smaller slice. By the way, I remember George Bush uh, famously one time said in a presidential debate that he believed in making the pie higher, which I thought was just a great call. <laughs> and he joked, he later said he was on record as believing we should make the pie higher. What he, of course, meant was to make the, the pie larger. Now, we know this, right? We, we know that various economic theories believed that the market economy was a zero-sum game. This is what Karl Marx said in his Communist Manifesto. He believed that if the total amount of wealth over time would be transferred from the proletariat, from the workers, to the capitalists. So if you look at this pie here, you, this is not the numbers of people, it's the total amount of wealth. The red are the workers, the chartreuse are the capitalists. Marx's claim is that over time, the total amount of wealth, because of the logic of capitalism, would get transferred from the workers to the capitalists. Capitalists would hire uh, wage earners, pay them a wage, uh, hopefully make a profit on the product, a shirt or, or something like that. Take the profit, not squander it. You take the profit and reinvest it in greater capital and equipment so that the labor would be more productive. Then he could pay the workers even less and hire even fewer. So Marx predicted that over time, you'd get a larger and larger group of workers, many unemployed, who are poorer and poorer, and the capitalists would acquire the vast majority of the wealth, thus capitalism sowing the seeds of its own destruction because of the revolt of uh, the injustice of the workers. Now, that was his prediction, of course. The prediction was based on a more or less zero-sum game view of capitalism. Yet, while he was writing the Communist Manifesto in his apartment, a few miles away, factory workers' wages were going up rather than down, fundamentally and empirically contradicting his argument. We know now why... He got that wrong. But remember, half the human race languished under uh, his philosophical system for a good part of the 20th century. We know the market reality is that over time, and in general, the market grows. I know you're all staggered by my animation prowess here, right? <laughs> I don't have a designer that helps me. is the best I can do, so I'm just illustrating the point, right? The market grows. The pie grows. And that's important because what that means is that somebody can get fabulously wealthy in a market economy, not because they took money from someone else, but because they created wealth that wasn't there before. Wealth that provided jobs and provided things for people that they freely wanted. That's the sort of miracle of the market. Now, we know that economically. We know that over time, despite bumps and bruises, the economy grows, the pie grows. But I find this actually really interesting theologically because economists, of course, know empirically that the economy grows, but there's a theological question that you might ask, well, why is this? What would man be like? What must human beings be like if uh, human beings are able to create wealth? I mean, think about it. We're able to take sand, right, which is virtually free, create things like integrated circuits, computer chips, and fiber optic cables. Now, this, if, if you uh, sort of know the Judeo-Christian tradition, you'd say, well, this is exactly what we should expect. God creates human beings in his image. God, the creator, can call the universe into existence, and he creates these beings within the created universe in his image 
So in some sense, presumably, our image will reflect God's creativity. God, the creator with a capital C, human beings are creators with lowercase c's. God can call the entire universe into existence by free choice. We take the material substrate that God has given us and our ingenuity, and we create wealth that wasn't there before. That, I think, is a, an economic reality and empirical insight that lends itself to an obvious theological insight. And I would hope that more uh, Christians would understand that and would understand the moral virtues and potential of the market economy. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Uh, commenting is our own Doug Bandow. Doug is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties, although every time I talk to Doug, he's working on some other issue like health care, and now he's commenting on uh, God and economics. Uh, li like Jay Richards, he's also written on how Christians should think about economics, uh, and we have copies of a very good book that Doug wrote uh, several years ago called Beyond Good Intentions, A Biblical View of Politics. Earlier in his career, Doug was a special assistant to President Reagan and editor of the magazine Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune magazine. He speaks frequently at academic conferences on college campuses uh, and to business groups. He's been a regular commentator on this, like an alphabet soup, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. And he holds a law degree from Stanford University. Please join me in welcoming Doug Bandow. Well, thanks, Dan. It's a great pleasure to be here to talk about these topics, especially to be with uh, good friends, both Dan and Jay. And I want to point out, Dan does yeoman work on issues where the economic myths and the piety myth are so important, on immigration and trade, where we're talking about issues where, in fact, the policies not only benefit all of us, but benefit the least among us. And very often, the politics runs against those policies. And Dan's work in this area, I think, is extraordinarily important, because the political myths that we see very often hurt those who have the least. And uh, it's very hard to make the case in this political environment today for the good policies, which in fact are best for those who are poor among us. It's a pleasure for me to, to talk about this issue, to kind of step back from the practical a little bit and uh, focus a bit more on the transcendent. And uh, Jay has done absolutely yeoman work here. We've worked together before with Acton and other groups. Because what we're talking about is both an important book and a very important subject. You know, the role of religion, the role of kind of moral, the moral transcendent in terms of the economic system is one that I do think we have to address. Washington, obviously, is a city which doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about the transcendent, doesn't worry an awful lot about uh, deep moral issues. It's much more concerned about who has, you know, the big corner office in the West Wing that Henry Kissinger once had, or who's going to control the right committees on Capitol Hill, or who's going to push what bill through and what interest group gets hurt. But ultimately, ideas and moral ideas are going to control and direct the kinds of practical policies that uh, we're involved in. And capitalism, while I think it has won the practical argument, kind of the bathtub test, I mean, who, what system gives us better bathtubs, you know, remains under attack and remains challenged on the moral issue. And I do think, as Jay indicated, that there is an irony that having won that practical argument today, you know, that I think a lot of people have forgotten in many ways the great 20th century struggle. You know, 20 years ago, next Monday, the Berlin Wall fell. You know, I mean, so if you think of college students today, they lived in a world where that, uh, you know, that just doesn't exist. You know, th this epitomized a system where the East Germans shot down a thousand people trying to escape from their own country. This is a system where they had to lock their own people in with barbed wire and trenches and dogs. 
you know, this, this is what that system is, and it's kind of disappeared from our consciousness. And I think that's it's very unfortunate because it really did tell us what that system was all about. It was a system that was not only impoverishing materially, but it was impoverishing spiritually and morally. You know, there's some, and I think that's something which people tend to, to lose when they start critiquing capitalism. Nevertheless, if you look at the current context, one looks at, for example, the economic crisis, the financial crisis. It is perceived as being one due to greed and, you know, capitalism. You know, the arguments over health care, the questions of access and fairness, one sees, you know, here's many of the same kinds of arguments that, you know, the market system doesn't work, it's unfair, we don't have fair access, it's an immoral system. You know, many environmental issues are presented much the same way, that it's greed and profit-seeking that are, you know, raping the environment, that the environment is at risk because of a capitalist system, that, uh, you know, essentially greed, capitalism, you know, profit motive, all of these things are undermining deep moral values. And this is certainly a view that comes from the religious left. Uh, Danny Collum, a man I have a lot of respect for, part of the Sojourners community, you know, a number of years ago wrote an article arguing that capitalism was based purely upon the profit motive. There was nothing else, essentially. And I think you know, if, if capitalism only reflected that, then one would have to say that's a pretty serious critique. Presumably there is more to life than just the profit motive, just the desire to make money. But I think it's you know, important to recognize the other side of the story. You know, Jay pointed out, looking at the financial crisis and argued it's part of the piety myth, that there are a lot of good intentions there in policy. And there were, but there was also human greed that played out in government policy. I mean, let's face it, we know people were making money based on you know, these institutions. We know the institutions and the people who lobbied for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the CRA. We know the people who lobbied for all of these things, including the bailouts. That what we had is a system where if you want to argue about human greed, well, let's look at how the political system worked. You know, the notion that human greed is somehow unique to the economic system. You know, the problem ultimately is greed is a human characteristic. It's not an economic characteristic. And uh, you know, so is uh, you know, covetousness. So are you know, many other things that we have that are clearly not just matters of economics. And if one goes down and looks at issues, it's not just uh, that issue, but one can look at health care systems, look at how nationalized health care systems work. Do they actually work to the benefit of those with the least and the least access and the least power? One can argue we see human greed uh, you know, operating there even in governmental systems as well. Clearly, capitalism is not perfect. Any human institution, all human institutions are going to be flawed because human beings are flawed. Sinful human beings you know, cannot create perfect institutions. The critical question, and I think this is where Jay's book is very important, is the whole question about what system is best for channeling and controlling and limiting human greed, the impact of greed, the impact of sinfulness, the impact of human imperfection. Is it a system that concentrates power or a system that diffuses power? And this, to my mind, is an extraordinarily important point. Government concentrates power. You know, capitalism, for all of its flaws, diffuses power. And that matters a lot when you're talking about sinful human beings. One need only look at the 20th century to understand the dangers of concentrated power. You know, the totalitarian death states of the 20th century concentrated power that sinful human beings got their hands on. And the result was 100 or 200 million dead. It was constant war. It was destruction. You know, that is a result of concentrated power. And what we see, uh, kind of less pernicious, but nevertheless in many ways very damaging, modern welfare states. We see what's happened to the inner city. We see the problem of a lack of opportunity. We see family breakup and community breakup. I would argue we see that in large part because of policies as a result of concentrated power that have been utterly pernicious in terms of human development, family development, and community development. We constantly see out of Washington political hacks talking about running America. And the question is, well, why do we want politicians running America? We run America. 
Now, my view is we elect a president and congressman to take charge of the federal government and to do what the government's responsibilities are. We don't elect them to run our lives. I had a debate yesterday at Penn State on health care uh, up against a very nice gentleman, and his comment was, well, you don't understand. See, the government is us. And he had a plan, and the plan was going to have all these community panels. And I told him, well, Chuck, you're a very nice guy, but I don't want you running my health care, right? I don't care who the government is. It's not your job to run my health care. And I think that's the problem, is that politics concentrates power. Capitalism and free markets separated. Now, it's important to recognize that, you know, our capitalist system is not really capitalist. It's a mixed economy heavily, heavily influenced by government because, unfortunately, in many ways, the, the greatest enemies of capitalism are the capitalists. I mean, they understand that the way to make money is to go get their friends in government and bail them out and close off markets and close off, you know, protect their market share and regulate their competitors, and that's what the business of Washington is all about. Very little, I would argue, that goes on in the economic regulatory realm has much to do with the public interest. Almost all of it is this kind of rent-seeking, as economists call it. Lobbying for personal and you know, economic privilege by uh, you know, corporations and businesses in what is supposed to be a free market, but in practice very often doesn't turn out that way. Nevertheless, a free market system, a capitalist system, even in a perfect one, separates power. We have a system today that's very complicated and very messy. But we have governmental power, we have corporations that are very powerful, we have an independent sector. You know, one thing about, I think, a capitalist system is capitalism is not just economics, capitalism is a free system. Now, we have a society that's a relatively free society. There are a lot of institutions in our society that are not literally capitalistic. Almost all of us grow up in communes called families. We live in and grow up in and have extraordinary emotional ties to people through institutions that are in no way market-oriented. Almost all of us get involved in organizations that are not, in fact, profit-seeking. Anyone in the clergy, I hope, is not going into the clergy because they hope to make money. Now, some unfortunately do. We've certainly seen some people who rather have turned that into a profit-making endeavor. Nevertheless, most of those that I think we deal with, that both Jay and I have had the privilege of working with, have go into it for other things. Now, these are institutions that are more able to survive in a market-oriented society than a government-controlled one, because if government controls resources, government will make decisions in terms of how those resources are used. What we certainly saw in socialist systems, however you want to define them, is that politics controls economics. You know, that is not just political decisions that are made, but political decisions are made over the economic system. But I do think that it's more than just practical. The practical is extraordinarily important, but there is a very important moral aspect to liberty. You know, God has made us free. Now, Christian liberty, you know, assumes you should use your liberty in the right way. I mean, God tells us in terms of moral standards and how we should deal with one another and with God. Nevertheless, we are left free not to act in that way, and we are held accountable. And what I think is important to recognize is we are held accountable as individuals. Now, we live and work in community with one another. Community is extraordinarily important. But if you look at the, you know, the famous scene in Matthew 25, as the sheep and the goats stand before Jesus, they do not stand there in judgment in communities. They stand there as individuals. They are accountable for the individual moral decisions that they have made. And I would argue an aspect of Christian liberty then is you know, that you, are, you can make those decisions, and a political system should reflect that. That even when individuals make bad decisions, there's an essential dignity to the fact that we can make decisions for ourselves and for our families, and we know that we will ultimately be held accountable. If we want to think about being made in the image of God, people of dignity, that one needs that. Finally, I would argue virtue requires freedom. 
that if you want people to make virtuous decisions, they have to have the opportunity, the liberty, to make unvirtuous decisions. One can force people to conform to a moral standard, but that doesn't mean they're making virtuous decisions. Moreover, a system where we rely on political power is one where we're less likely to basically treat, kind of create the moral environment ourselves. We're going to rely instead on government. Now, some of my social conservative friends who look to government, I've always wondered why they want a government that has Teddy Kennedy and Newt Gingrich and a number of other people to be the moral leaders of society. These are not people I want bringing up my kids. These are not people that I want teaching morality to those around me. These are critically important moral instruction. These are not the sort of instructions that should be given to government. Nevertheless, there's a tendency to assume that that is a government function. Finally, the danger is the more expansive the political power, the less likely. Or the more, you know, the, the, we cannot assume that we will forever control government. There's a tendency to assume that if only we seize control of government, we can teach our moral values. But that, of course, assumes the other side isn't thinking the same thing. And unfortunately, the way the system works today, I think it's far more likely that those who take control of government are more likely to spread values antithetical to those of moral virtue than to uh, promote the kind of values that we want. So uh, let me sum up. I think that Jay's book is extraordinarily important because the moral issues really do matter. They're not talked about that much in Washington, but ultimately the challenge today to capitalism is not one of practical. It's not a question, I mean, we know what system produces the most wealth. We know the system that gives us the greatest opportunity and freedom. The question is what system is most conducive to a good moral order? I would argue capitalism is not moral. Capitalism has no intentions. Capitalism does not tell us how to use our freedom. That has to come from elsewhere, and that's why we need other institutions. We need the family. We need churches. We need community organizations to help shape that moral understanding in terms of how we use our freedom. But that freedom is ultimately extraordinarily important. And if we want a society that is virtuous, we also need a society that's free. So freedom and virtue go together. They shouldn't be viewed as antagonists. And I think Jay's book explores this in a very important way, and I encourage all of you to get his book and to talk with him on these subjects. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. I, I just want to add very, very briefly, um, what impressed me about the book is the, the range of scholarship. Jay's not only familiar with the teaching of the Bible, and I think he does interpret it uh, uh, properly, but he's done a lot of reading in economics and philosophy. I, I I don't think I've ever read a book that has both Bible verses and a very nifty chart showing Moore's Law and how it's worked since the 1960s. Uh, quite extraordinary that uh, basically computing power per thousand dollars doubles every 24 months, and there it is with a logarithmic uh, uh, chart. Did you do that yourself too? All right, that was very good. And then, and then it's got some wonderful quotes uh, calling uh, critics of capitalism into account, like my old favorite uh, Lester Thoreau, who was telling us as recently as 1989, the year the Berlin Wall came down, that communism worked as well as uh, capitalism. But then he's got a quote uh, uh, attributed to Doug's old boss, Ronald Reagan, who said at one point, uh, socialism only works in heaven where they don't need it and in hell where they already have it. Uh, now we'll be glad to take your questions. Please uh, wait for the microphone, identify yourself, just your name and affiliation, and then uh, please get right to the question so as many people can ask as possible. How about right, right there at the, yes. yes. My name is Harold McElwain, and I just love to listen to 
economic systems and political systems. And I was fortunate enough to grow up with a grandfather who just recently died at the age of 90. So therefore, he experienced the uh, Great Depression. And I'm just wondering if my way of capitalism will work in the overall uh, definition of capitalism. And that is, I only buy what I need and not what I want. And therefore, if I'm not buying then how will capitalism survive as we know it today? And one of the things that I keep hearing is the downfall of the recent um, economic system with Fannie Mae and all of those um, systems, but no one never talks about the savings and loans debacle that didn't have, to my opinion, have anything to do with uh, policies. So it seems to me it's... Capitalism constantly has to get one penny earning every year or people lose their jobs. And I know I can just go on and on and on, but I just don't believe that is an either or. What if I say neither capitalism nor communism and it has to be something else? Yeah, well, I guess I would just say, you know, there's there's this sort of elusive search for a third way between capitalism or socialism, which Richard John Newhouse said is always ends up being socialism unfortunately you know and so i always want to know okay so what's the proposal and i think what you want to do is just get certain basic facts clear in your head i mean hayek's argument about uh centralized planning for instance there's an information problem and the only way you can find out what an act the actual price of something ought to be is through the sort of distributed network of a market in which you have supply and demand and people are making their subjective evaluations it results in a price it's a piece of information uh, the central planner doesn't know what the price is. So all he can do is arbitrarily set prices or production quotas or things like that. It's just an absolute knockdown, drag-out argument. So anytime you have that same attendant information problem in a policy, you're going to have the same problems. And so usually these uh, ideas of a kind of third way between capitalism or socialism, they ignore that. Just a little bit of bad incentives. It's just, you know, it's not as bad as terrible incentives, but it's worse than good incentives. And I, I think the arguments for the market, a free market is not anarchy. It's not you know, that island in Lord of the Flies where everybody gets to do what they want to do. There's a rule of law. We're not allowed to steal from each other, kill each other, defraud each other, things like that. That sets up the rules of the game. But once the rules are set up, uh, it provides a series of incentives and ways in which we can interact, which over time uh, in, in general is win-win. And so I'd want an argument for kind of some some specifics. Uh, now, there was a, a the first point you make, I won't speak on savings and loans. Somebody else may want to talk about that. But this idea that, well, wouldn't it be better if people just bought what they needed and not what they wanted? And this is an old sort of philosophical and moral discussion. And the problem is there's no analytic distinction between what I need and what I want. I mean, we have a basic idea of our physical needs. You know, I need a certain amount of food and, and water and a shelter and things like that. We also, it turns out, probably need love. Children that are neglected, you know, in orphanages, uh, in cribs often die simply for lack of nurture. So, there, you know, what, what, where does, do needs live off and, and uh, desires or wants, you know, begin? So I don't think capitalism uh, requires anything like that. I think in general, it's a good policy not to buy things you can't afford or borrow money you can't pay back. That's the sort of general rule. But I don't think there's an analytic distinction between needs and wants, and it usually leads to, I think, pernicious results if you try to do that. I mean, to take email. Nobody, you know, 40 years ago, no one was sitting around saying, man, if I really 
need email. If I just had email, it'd be great, right? Um, somebody created it, an entrepreneur, several people. There's no one inventor, but this thing, email, uh, emerged in some way. Uh, people started using it. It was a curiosity. Uh, it was, you know, it sort of fulfilled a want initially. Well, now most of us have jobs in which we need email. So the entrepreneurs, they don't only fill markets. They can create new markets with new wants and needs, and things can pass from the kind of luxury column to the uh, need column. And so I, I don't think there's anything especially informative about the needs versus wants distinction. I think there's just basic moral judgments having to do with prudence and thrift. Don't spend more than you can afford and don't borrow more than you can pay back. I, mean, I think the value of, of a market system is that prices matter because prices contain information. There is no one in any building in Washington who knows everything. I mean, a price system, even when, you know, I mean, given the inefficiency of, a, of net or national to any marketplace, embody a lot of assumptions about everybody who's acting in the marketplace. I don't know any politician who I think has the knowledge or the foresight to kind of run the economy. And I think of all these wonderful communist five-year plans. They're all disasters. I mean, you'd sit around and say, well, how many shoes do we need? I don't know. What style shoes do we need? Who on earth knows? Well, I don't know. How many cars do we need? I don't know. What should they be made of? You know, should they be made of gold or should they be made of steel or platinum? Well, prices tell you all these things. I mean, so the problem is if you have no price system, it was, all, it was a problem Mises talked about. I mean, the problem is socialist calculation. You know, that socialism can try to work if there are capitalist systems around because then you can kind of steal whatever their prices are and figure, well, okay, maybe this is, you know, but if you, if you imagine a system where there is no social, you know, there is no market system. Well, how do you decide any of this stuff? And if you look at Capitol Hill, what, what suggests that congressmen have any idea what to do? By the time they get around passing legislation, you know, the crisis is passed. You know, the so-called stimulus bill, most of it will take effect while we are recovering. I mean, the money, you know, the lag times are extraordinary. It's the same thing with Federal Reserve. You know, they kind of gin things up, and by the time they start acting, you know, the crisis is over, and now they're going to create the problem on the other side. SNLs is a very good example of crazy government policy. I had a very good friend who, at the time, from the campaign, named Ed Gray, who was running the Federal Savings and Loan Board. What Congress did is they deregulated interest rates. So they said, you know, you can kind of, you know, kind of, you know, go out there and you can make any kind of investments and, you know, lend to anybody. Because SNLs once were primarily mortgages. And they said, look, we need to have more financially remunerative. And they said, okay, you can do anything you want. But, but we will still, we will still protect you and we will, you know, you know basically, you know, insure deposits. So it's a great game. If, you know, if I make a mistake and lose money, the taxpayers pay. If my investments pay off, I get rich. So what you ha and then of course though, as you started getting into trouble and this was persistent in the industry they started having some bad loans showing up you keep making more hail mary loans because you figure I've got to make this money back and if we if we lose the money the government pays for it but if we make it back then of course I get my money back and poor Ed Gregg went down to Capitol Hill and said there's a problem here and he got mowed over by the SNLs. Very powerful lobby. Every congressional district had two or three or five or ten SNLs. Well, you know, the presidents of the local SNLs were all very important political figures. They would come to their congressman and say, who's this lunatic regulator? He's going to ruin us. You know, and then the congressman said, you know, out of our face. And they, you know, I mean, he was destroyed. Uh, I mean, he had a very, very rough time in town. So, you know, and if you look at the Great Depression, you look at what recently happened, there's a, a whole, I mean, bad Decisions are made in private markets. Private people make bad decisions, but they are exacerbated and inflated when you have bad policy. So if you have expansionary monetary policy plus a whole system that tries to push all sorts of lending into you know, high-risk loans, which insures and promotes all of these things, you, know, you magnify private mistakes. And then you bail everybody out and people suddenly start assuming maybe I'll get bailed out. There's a reason to think the Bear Stearns bailout caused 
companies like Lehman to say, I don't have to take the tough steps. Uh, Merrill Lynch dumped you know, a lot of its bad paper for 22 cents on the dollar. They said, we're going to try to get out of this stuff. Lehman did nothing. You know, and that may very well have been a thing. The assumption will probably get bailed out. If they bail out Bear Stearns, those little guys, you know, will probably be. So you know, markets are imperfect, but I just look at the political process and throw up my hands. But, uh, over against the wall there. Hi. <clears throat> Uh, Robert Wenzel with EconomicPolicyJournal.com. Um, as far as Ayn Rand, do you think she understood the distinction you're making between self-interest and selfishness and just had uh, was in favor of selfishness for other reasons, or she didn't understand your distinction? And then the second question, do you find uh, any particular religious group that is more open to free markets than others? Yeah, the, the first point, I mean, I, you know, I wish Rand were here because, I, you know, it seems like a sort of obvious distinction once you make it. Uh, but she, I don't think she clearly did make it. Um, you can see it. In fact, you know, uh, you figure this out that Smith made the distinction, though he doesn't make it really tightly and analytically anywhere. Uh, you just get it from reading his stuff that clearly he recognizes the difference. And there have been some important articles sort of making the distinction in several years. Uh, and, and so I think there was both a kind of slight intellectual problem, something she, she, she misunderstood. In some ways, I think that Rand sort of thought to defend the capitalist stereotype uh, of the Marxists in some ways, but rather than saying, okay, this is a stereotype that needs to be recentered, she, she chose to defend it. But on the other hand, I don't think that that kind of rhetorical mistake is really reflected in her literature. Her characters aren't, I mean, if you hear that, you know, greed and, and selfishness are a virtue, well, the stereotypical greedy person is the mi miser, right, who hoards his wealth and clutches it. It's not the entrepreneur who puts his wealth at risk. And that's who her characters were. Rand knew to make entrepreneurs and industrialists heroes. In fact, almost no one is known to do this, right, except Rand. Certainly Hollywood's not quite figured this out. Um, it's a wonderful life, right? George Bailey, that's one example of a business person as business person being portrayed as a hero. And Willy Wonka, all right? So it's a wonderful life. He's balanced in that movie by, you know, the, everybody loves to hate Mr. Potter. And then Willy Wonka is a kind of weirdo and eccentric, right? Um, that shows you that she filled a niche, rhetorically, and that in some ways I think her literary instincts were better than her philosophical instincts, and that it was just a simple mistake. And it leads us not only to say capitalism is based on greed, but then even to say that it's, that it's a virtue, which, of course, I mean, it might have been a more of a rhetorical flourish. Nevertheless, lots of people make this argument. In fact, Michael Douglas says he, ha he hates that he played that role because he still gets people when he's in New York, like Wall Street traders, that come up and say, you're the man, you're the man. <laughs> so a lot of, lot of would-be capitalists have bought the argument. And I think it's just like, you know, it, is, uh, it was mentioned earlier, sometimes capitalists themselves have a bad uh, self-understanding so that a great entrepreneur can make a killing and then spend the rest of his life giving philanthropically to causes that you know, are hostile to the very system that, that made him rich. And so in some ways, I think we defenders of capitalism have in some ways kind of uh, have indwelled this or allowed it to indwell us. And it's very important. It's one thing to say you want an economic system that channels greed and selfishness. You want an economic system appropriate to the fallen human condition. That's one of the geniuses of capitalism. It doesn't require angels. On the other hand, that's not the same as saying that it is based on cap or greed, or even that it needs it. Capitalism needs people both to create and to invest, right, to save and invest. It needs ingenuity. It needs hard work. It needs rule of law. It doesn't need greed. It, it channels it. And so that's, that's what I think we would want. 
Well, oh yeah, uh, yeah. In general, at least until recently, conser- uh, white conservative evangelicals generally poll uh, as being sort of more favorably disposed to capitalism. But you know, in general, there is a kind of a, a left-right uh, shift, so that people that are really religiously observant, at least Americans, tend to be more friendly to free market uh, economics than obviously, you know, say a liberal Protestant or a liberal Catholic. But what's happened in recent years is that there's been a shift. So books like Jim Wallace, there is an attempt, and I think a quite sort of successful attempt, to peel off at least part of the conservative religious community for toward left-wing policies. You don't have to convince every Orthodox Catholic or evangelical to be a socialist. You just need to get three or four percentage points, right, to peel off to the left and you win elections. And I think that's what we're seeing since 2004. Okay, but right there. Back to the, my name is Stephen Shore, back to the more religious side. You've mentioned that of our fallen human nature, and isn't this a constant temptation for religious people to move us to a realm where they feel life ought to exist, to sort of transcend our fallen human nature um, Mm -hmm. through legislation? And while people may nod and want to live in a world where the lion will lie down with the lamb, (laughs) to do this through legislation would... I think it is arguably foreseeable that it would result in a lot of dead lambs. Right. So how to... <laughs> so you wouldn't have the problem for long, right? Yeah. Yeah. temptation to move us to Absolutely. an alternate universe. Yeah, and that's actually the first myth I discuss in Chapter 1, and it's called the Nirvana myth. And it's, you've heard the Nirvana fallacy. And the Nirvana myth is sort of uh, believing that you can create nirvana or you can create the kingdom of God uh, politically. Now, theologically, there's, there's this idea of a kingdom of God. And in the New Testament, at least, the kingdom of God has a both already and not yet character. So Jesus can say, my kingdom is not of this world, but he can also say the kingdom of God is among you. And so in Christian theology, the kingdom of God sort of exists wherever people are doing good work. It's sort of advancing the kingdom. At the same time, God establishes his kingdom. Human beings don't. And all of our experience is that when human beings try to create the kingdom of God, right, they bring, try to bring heaven down, they said they bring hell up, as it's often been, been put. And so the Nirvana myth, it, it, what it does is it, it causes us not to weigh the live alternatives. Because what we want in economics and politics, we want to say, of the live alternatives, what's the best one? Not what is my platonic ideal, and of the live alternatives, you define it that way. Capitalism, I think, wins hands down. It's only when you're comparing it to the kingdom of God, suddenly you get moral equivalent. So that Stalinist Russia and capitalism, well, compared to kingdom of God, they're more or less the same. Right? If you're comparing live alternatives, though, then there's kind of a moral uh, uh, contrast. So I think it's a really, really important point. How about down in front here? Will Amatruda, uh, in comparing capitalism with collectivism, don't we have something of a straw man argument here? I mean, outside of Venezuela and North Korea, <laughs> who's really making the argument for collectivism? Is, isn't, couldn't one say that the real question is what kind of capitalism? Uh, now, you, re- you raised the issue of the mortgage-backed security. Uh, isn't part of the debacle that they led to uh, that the rating agencies weren't doing their job because they had an inherent conflict of interest. One part of their business was was rating these securities. The other other was uh, 
getting commissions on on on, on selling them. Uh, and and it was it was like the old Atomic Energy Commission. Part of them had an, uh, had had a job to to push atomic energy, mm-hmm. but they were also supposedly making sure that these things were safe. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. Certainly the two ratings agencies that were perceived to be somehow independent. I mean, the fact that these, you know, certain types of assets could be rated as, you know, triple A. I mean, you know, like a, a, a treasury bond or something. You know, something weird obviously happened there, right? Uh, what it was. So that's definitely part of the uh, problem. But again, that I think was the result of a series of regulatory uh, decisions. If we had a free market of ratings agencies, people with investors would fi- really quickly figure out which ones were good and which ones were bad, right? And they wouldn't pay money to, and they wouldn't follow the other. So I think, you know, frankly, if we had a rating blogosphere or something, it'd be much better off. So, but that's sort of a separate question. Of course, the question generally is always going to be, especially for Americans, uh, it's not simply capitalism versus collectivism. We don't exist in a capitalist economy, but what we want to do is sort of think through these economic systems, through their logic, and see what the kind of empirical data tell us about it. And when you look at, I think, free market capitalism and the types of incentives that it creates, the way in which it over time distributes power rather than concentrates it appropriately, or when it allows wealth or power to be concentrated, say in the hands of a few really rich billionaires, uh, you know, Ron Sider says, well, we, we've got to keep power divided so you don't want people to get too rich because then they'll have too much power. Well, then what's his solution? We'll have the government tax the money. So he's saying, well, having George Soros and Warren Buffett having too much money, that they're going to be too powerful. So let's have the federal government take that money and therefore, con- therefore concentrate power even more in the hands of the state, right? It doesn't follow. Uh, power is divided even when wealth is concentrated in private hands simply because rich uh, capitalists don't all vote the same, right? T. Boone Pickens and George Soros balance each other, right? And so it, it, it's sort of, a, I think, a silly argument. But it, it, I think it is good to look at the sort of two stark experiments between capitalism and collectivism, because in reality, we're not dealing with capitalism here uh, now. We're someplace in the middle, and whatever arguments, say, Hayek or von Mises, I think, made about the collectivist planned economy, this information problem I mentioned a minute ago, that same problem is going to still be a problem even if it's hidden really well and isn't quite as much of a problem. And so I think getting the logic of the systems is a really important first order of business. And then you discover that, well, there isn't an obvious middle ground because the contrast isn't collectivism or anarchy. It's collectivism or capitalism. And in capitalism, you have a rule of law in which the state and mores and cultural institutions enforce that. And that when you have that, I think that's by far the best alternative. One of the problems of mixed economies is that of regulatory capture. I mean, basically, the, the rating system, rating agencies were it's a, a government oligopoly, and there were changes in the, the regulations and legislation that moved them more towards this irresponsible stance. And one thing that happened is they got away from investors actually paying for the services; it was people selling. And I mean, there are a number of stories about how I mean, it's very clear if you wanted to have if you wanted to be the uh, rating agency that was hired, you better promise to make everything AAA. So I think this, that that clearly was part of the system. You know that was you know, very, very problematic. I think in many ways what we have is a whole series of mixed economies out there, and they, they kind of run across the spectrum. That, you know, no one that I'm aware of really believes throughout Europe, or no, no, not much you know, believes in government ownership of the means of production. The irony of the recent elections, both national and European Union, is almost all of them moved rightward. I mean, the European Union elections, other than, I think, you know, the Greeks and also their national election, 
you know, almost all of them, I mean, the EU members, you know, most of them were, you know, moved more to the right. The German uh, national election moved more to the right. You know, well, you know, the expectation in Great Britain is that the Tories will take power whenever the election's held, presumably next, early next year. You know, so there's no one out there who really wants socialism. So it's a question of mixed economies. One of the ironies is that if you look at the U.S. system based not on government spending levels, but in terms of regulatory intrusions, the Scandinavians are much more free market. Scandinavians have more income transfer but they're far less intrusive in manipulating the economy and allowing industries basically to use the political system to their own advantage. So you can argue on that basis that Sweden is a more free market economy than America. So some of these measures get very complicated and play out. And I would say if we're going to have one or the other, to some degree, I'd say the Swedish model might be better because it's cleaner. You know what the cost is. You pay the cost as opposed to all this kind of you know, hidden, fake, you know, you know, screwing around in terms of trying to ruin your competitors and play with the system. Down in front, the first chair here, and then we'll move down the aisle. Thank you. Um, very interesting. I, I am, would like to separate the Judeo-Christian element when talking about capitalism and in the economy. I think I, I guess I'm a strong believer in the separation of church and state, uh, but I am a big believer in, in capitalism or the free enterprise system. I want to pose a question to both of you. What impact and what influences have the lobbyists and the think tanks had on our economy and on our system and on capitalism and um, um, whatever policies are set up now or in the past um, in the United States and nationally? Well, I guess the three of us probably hope that they're, they're having some sort of influence, or at least that some are. And, and I mean, a lot of the sort of legislative ideas that you see on Capitol Hill in, start in, in think tanks. Uh, and so, you know, um, th there's a reason for the growth of think tanks, especially more conservative and free market think tanks, I think, in the last 50 years, in part because of a sort of hostility on the part of uh, many you know, public and private universities to these ideas. But I think uh, I think there's been an, some influence, both for, for good and for ill, but, you know, you'd separate those directly from the sort of lobbyists. Those of us up here more, um, you know, I'm a little more upstream in general. I don't write on you know, current house bills or anything like that, um, so I wouldn't want to speak to that. I think that lobbyists, to some degree, are a symptom. I mean, of, of people who want to influence the economy. Look, I mean, look, as long as the federal government hands out three or four trillion dollars of loot... And as long as one regulation from one agency can destroy an industry or wipe your company out, people have an incentive to and should show up to lobby. I mean, you cannot create a system where basically everything that I have is at risk for some small little provision that might get dropped into the conference committee that nobody will read other than the chairman who dropped it in and not expect people to lobby. The more loot there is available, you know, the more harm the regulatory system can do, the more people will spend on the political system and lobbyists. So I think, yeah, is lobbying pernicious? Well, what I'd say is pernicious is having an economy that is open to the use of political influence for self-enrichment. And But that, the larger the government, the more that's going to occur. And I think the idea of rejiggering the rules, if only the right people will give the money, right? Well, you know, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You know, you rejigger the rules and everybody kind of rechange, you know, changes. PACs arose because of changes in the, you know, the, the contribution system. You know, you change it over here and something new happens. You have public financing and suddenly newspaper editorialists become more important. I mean, there's no way you eliminate influence. And I think, to my mind, that's the real problem, is a system that's kind of open to that influence peddling, whatever you want to call it. Lobbyists are natural to that. It's not lobbyists causing it, but they're kind of an outgrowth of the larger problem. On the end there. 
My name is Ken Hagerty. I'm with Renewing American Leadership. I'm about halfway through your book, and I want to commend you for the, the, the very hardest kind of writing is writing that is simple and clear. And I think you have really you have really accomplished that here. I think you have got a book that is going to be as important as Road to Serfdom, but it's twice as easy to read as Hayek's book. <laughs> I hope so. And that ain't nothing. And I'd like to illustrate my point by asking you to describe, if you would, the trading game. Would yeah. you take a moment? And sure. Explain? Yeah. And, of course, I just sort of glided over this. But the trading game, I've got a section in the book where I talk about I basically it's everything I needed to know about economics I learned in the sixth grade. Um, I just didn't figure it out until I was about 40 that that was the point of the game. But um, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, a town in the panhandle of Texas, which is normally very hot, but it's on a plateau. And so three or four times a year there are random ice storms. And so teachers always have to be prepared for these ice storms. And when I was in the sixth grade, uh, our music teacher apparently anticipated this ice storm because she went to, the, I think, the local Kmart to the dollar section, and she bought a bunch of little dollar toys for all the, all the students, uh, came back and passed these toys out during recess and said, okay, we're going to play a game called the trading game. And she handed out these toys. Let's just say there were 25 students in, in the room to keep it simple. Uh, one toy to each of the students. He said, okay, now this is called the trading game, and in a minute we're going to trade these things, but I want you to look at what you have. And some people had paddle balls, some people had silly putty, some people had Barbie trading cards, right? Um, me. Uh, and then you look around at what everybody else has. Uh, he said, okay, I want you to look at what people have, look at what you have, and then write down a score of 1 to 10 on a piece of paper how much you like what you have compared to the other things. If you hate it, and you would like anything other than that, write a one. If you're not giving it up for anything, write down ten. All right, so we did that. And then she had everyone call out their number, and she summed it and wrote it on the board. So you got the sort of sum. said, okay, now you can freely trade with anyone in your row. So everyone had four potential trading partners. Now, you could freely trade, so I couldn't sort of beat somebody over the head and steal from them, right? You had to find someone that said they wanted what you had more, and you wanted what they had more. So it's a free trade. Now, you probably already see where this is going. It's win-win, right? So that doesn't take too long because you only had so many alternatives. Uh, we did that. And then after everybody had gotten you know, what they were going to end up with, she had us write down our score again, how much we valued the thing, counted up the numbers, wrote down the number on the board, and guess what happened? Score went up, right? The total evaluation, the sort of subjective evaluations of what people had went up. Then she said, now you can trade with anyone in the room. Okay, everyone had 24 potential trading partners, and if you know anything about networking, there are a huge number of possibilities at this point. So, you know, the kid in the back row that has not said anything the whole semester is suddenly, you know, doing these complicated trigonometric calculations to figure out how he can do a series of trades to get what he wants, right? Like the guy with the Barbie trading parts can figure out how to get the, uh, the paddle ball, right? Um, and so this went on much more chaotic for several minutes, finally settled down. She said, okay, now write down again how much you value the thing between 1 and 10. We did that. She summed up the numbers, and of course, you know what happened. The numbers went way up, way up. Now, what's going on there? Well, if you think about that as an economy, in a sense, the total amount of wealth, if you think of wealth as people's means and their sort of general satisfaction, went up, even though nothing new had been added to the system. Remember, all that was there was plugged in at the beginning. All these things cost more or less the same. So in other words, a series of rules and human interactions was able to create wealth, in a sense, even prior to new stuff being created or added. That's a remarkable sort of counterintuitive discovery. I think that's why Isaac Asimov 
you know, sort of thought there was just something fishy about the whole capitalist thing. Some kind of trick was happening, right? But this is an insight both about the sort of immateriality of wealth in some ways, uh, about the importance of rules, about the importance of human interaction. It was a kind of social networking uh, that itself created wealth. That, to me, is a powerful argument for the free market and also for an argument that the larger the pool of trading partners, the larger the market, the better off everyone will be over time. We're going to shift gears now. Uh, Jay has graciously agreed to stick around a little bit to sign some books upstairs. So uh, we're about to adjourn, and I'm going to grab Jay by the arm and whisk him through, fight off the adoring crowds. <laughs> the groupies. We'll, the, we'll go up, up the elevator, and you're welcome to uh, come on upstairs, uh, join us for our free buffet lunch, stay in and network and chat, and buy a book and have Jay sign it. Thank you very much. Thank you.